Good to see everybody. It is good to be back. You miss the little things when you don't get to meet. And uh, I was just surprised how much I missed. Um, just not meeting and not seeing people and not hearing various small children crying out. Um, the, uh, and I especially miss the singing. Um, you know, Joanne has to endure just me singing, and there aren't all of you to sort of drown that out. So thank you for coming back to drown me out. Um, that makes it easier, not nearly as self-conscious then. So we are in the book of Deuteronomy today. So you want to turn there. It's the fifth book uh, in the Bible. And we're at the second half of chapter three. And uh, this is a unique passage because it seems somewhat disconnected. There's a number of uh, seemingly three paragraphs that have nothing to do with each other. So uh, today it's my job to show you how they're connected. Um, so let us uh, turn there and uh, listen carefully as this is God's word. Deuteronomy 3 verses 12 through 29. When we took possession of this land at that time, I gave to the Reubenites and the Gadites the territory beginning at Arior, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon and half the hill country of Gilead with its cities. And then I'm gonna skip down because of all the names uh, to uh, verse 18. What Moses is doing in those verses is dividing the land amongst all the tribes. So he has all the Hebrew names, but he also has all the Canaanite uh, names in there. And um, so let's pick up at verse 18. And I commanded you at that time saying, the Lord your God has given you this land to possess. All your men of valor shall cross over armed before your brothers, the people of Israel. Only your wives, your little ones and your livestock, I know that you have much livestock, shall remain in the cities that I have given you until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as to you. And they also occupy the land that the Lord your God gives them beyond the Jordan. Then each of you may return to his possession, which I have given you. And I commanded Joshua at that time, your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. So the Lord, so will the Lord do to all the kingdoms into which you are crossing. The two kings refers to last week's uh, passage when he mentions the defeat of Sion and Og. He says, you shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. And I pleaded with the Lord at that time, this is now Moses, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness in your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, the good hill country in Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. Go up to the top of Pisgah and lift up your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward and look at it with all your, and look at it with your eyes for you shall not go over this Jordan. But charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him, for he shall go over at the head of this people, and he shall put them in possession of the land that you shall see. 
So we remain in the valley opposite Beth Pure. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word and we need it while we wait with the people of Israel and the land between. Thank you for giving us the book of Deuteronomy and making us your people. You have brought us to this uh, matter-of-fact Old Testament story to learn more about how you want us to live and what you want us to love. So we ask this morning that you would give us the grace to understand your word. Give us the desire to learn from you this morning and help us consider what it takes to trust and obey your word. And as always, for this we need your grace. So we pray, speak through the words of Moses this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. Well, uh, some of you have heard of the great American novel, On the Road by Jack Kerouac. Um, I'm guessing that most of you haven't read it since it was published in the mid-1950s. Um, but this is considered one of the classic American novels, and uh, it chronicles two friends in their wanderings across the landscape of America, uh, really set in the late 1940s. So the storyline itself seems to ramble from one location to the next, featuring a host of odd characters that these two guys run into. This is sort of a pseudo-autobiography, kind of an embellished autobiography in some ways. And uh, so their lives revolve around drinking, drugs, and all sorts of immorality. And uh, for this reason, many seem to see the book as sort of a travelogue of empty pleasure-seeking. But if we look closer, we see something more significant. The story represents the journey of what was then known as the Beat Generation, a post-World War II generation, the beginning of the baby boomers, who had grown disenfranchised with society, feeling that the government merely used its people and that culture at large couldn't see past trivial things. And as such, many of its young people rebelled against traditional norms and went searching for meaning in new ways, which sounds remarkably current. And while we might see gross decadence in the details of the book On the Road, the sojourners themselves, Jack Kerouac, saw their journey as a spiritual one. Indeed, Kerouac once described On the Road as a tale of two Catholic buddies roaming the country in search of God. And this story, although it's sort of warped and tangled, it is a spiritual travelogue of what, reading it, seems to be random places where weird things happen and assorted people who do sinful stuff. Why do I bring this up? Because Deuteronomy is very similar in some very important ways. The opening chapters of Deuteronomy read like a collection of random places and assorted peoples. We have the Valley of Ishkal and Kadesh Barnea. We have the Geshurites and the Maccathites. Nobody really knows who any of these people are or what those places are actually like. It recounts Israel's glaring indiscretions, including the cowardice of the spies, Moses being banned from the land, and the sinful tendencies of the people. 
Yet none of these are the point of the narrative, which is to create a spiritual travelogue, a story that everyone can buy into. See, a key difference between On the Road and the book of Deuteronomy as spiritual travelogues is in the nature of their journeys. Kerouac's book chronicles the journey of leaving old ways in order to find new meaning. But Deuteronomy does just the opposite, revealing that the source of new meaning is found in the old ways. And in this case, it's found in Israel's original journey with the Lord, the Exodus journey from Egypt to the Promised Land. It is there that God definitively revealed himself to Israel. It was there that Israel's character as a people was revealed, and it is there that the people must return if they're going to continue this journey as God's people. However, Deuteronomy aims to do more than merely recount Israel's history. It aims to draw each new audience into the journey. It's kind of an enchanted story whose very words are a portal to ancient times and places. The times and places in view here are the key moments of Israel's journey from Egypt to the Promised Land, times when they stood before God. And in this way, each new audience doesn't merely observe the events, but participates in them. Well, how does that happen? Because we've learned in the last two weeks that this group of people consists of the children and the grandchildren of the generation that died in the wilderness. They didn't live through these key defining moments, these key events. How can they now be a participant in them? Well, that happens through something called collective memory. Collective memory is how communities, any community, addresses the age-old problem of helping individuals identify with the group. And the problem is that in order for individuals to become part of the group, they have to identify with its defining moments. But unfortunately, the defining moments have typically occurred in the past. As such, the very events with which the people need to identify are ones they haven't experienced. Enter collective memory. Through various kinds of commemorations and ceremonies, communities help people become familiar with the important events that allow them to share in the community's identity. Think of national holidays. It's one reason we celebrate the 4th of July. Or September 11th is a good example. Very few Americans actually experienced that event. But most of us can still identify with it. Even remembering the planes flying into the towers and ash-covered people running away. And I love hearing about that from people who weren't even born when it happened. But they've seen it so often that they remember it as if they were there that day. Through stories and videos and commemorative ceremonies, they've come to see themselves as participants in the event. And I think today most Americans would say that 9-11 is something that happened to us. Well, Deuteronomy is seeking to do something similar. 
and wants the people of each new generation to see themselves in some sense as participants in Israel's defining error, the Exodus journey from Egypt to the Promised Land. And so what Deuteronomy seeks to instill is not just the collective memory of good and bad events or wise or poor choices, but this perpetual question that faces God's people, in light of what we've been through, how will you now live? That is the defining question of the book of Deuteronomy. In light of what we've been through, in light of what we've been given, in light of what we've been taught, how will you now live? And that brings us to our text today in Deuteronomy 3. And that initially sounds like three disconnected, random stories and teaching and events. But as I hope we'll see, uh, they're all helping the Israelites and us answer that driving question of Deuteronomy, how will you now live? And the first thing that Moses teaches them about how they should now live is that they should love the Lord's place. So if you have the outline, if you've downloaded that from our website, that would be the first blank there. Love the Lord's place, verses 12 to 17. When we took possession of this land at that time, I gave to the Reubenites and the Gadites the territory beginning at Aryar, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and half the hill country of Gilead with its cities. The rest of Gilead and all Bashan, the kingdom of Og, that is, all the region of Argov, I gave to the half-tribe of Manasseh. All that portion of Bashan is called the land of Raphim. Jair the Massonite uh, took all the region of Argov, that is Bashan, as far as the border of the Geshurites and the Maccathites, and called the villages after his own name, Havat Jair, as it is to this day. To Machir I gave Gilead, and to the Reubenites and the Gadites I gave the territory from Gilead as far as the valley of the Arnon, with the middle of the valley as a border, as far over as the river Jabbok, the border of the Ammonites, the Arabah also with the Jordan as the border, from Chinneret as far as the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, under the slopes of Pisgah on the east. Now, if you're still awake, um, it takes a good knowledge of uh, the geography of uh, Israel that nobody did here. This is what we would today call the East Bank of the Jordan. We're familiar with the West Bank of modern politics. This is the East Bank, east of the Jordan. So it's not actually part of modern Israel. This would actually be part of the modern country of Jordan uh, today. So the East Bank of the Jordan is now secure. The people of Israel have captured it. They've actually conquered more land than they expected. And so the main tribes listed here are Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, although it's actually the half-tribe of Manasseh. Manasseh splits into two sections. And so these folks think it's a good idea to settle down. They realize this land is good pasture, and they have a lot of cattle. And Moses doesn't deny their request, just reminds them of their responsibility to cross the Jordan with all the other tribes and see the completion of the conquest before they come back to settle and to live in their own land. It's one of the things that's interesting to note here is God's concern for the whole community. 
once the Israelites had taken possession of this new territory, first of all, it's really important for Moses to tackle this is actually a strategic question of land allocation. Because the stories of all their ancestors told for generations have made it clear that unless these issues are decisively settled, it would just result in division and severed relationships and all sorts of resentment and bitterness. We find disputes over the land going back through the first five books all the way to Genesis 13. So being an agrarian culture that's based on farming and owning livestock, these people take the land pretty seriously and the allocation of the land and who gets what. And back in Numbers 32, these specific tribes had already requested that Moses give them this specific land. And he has already agreed to that. So now he's simply keeping his word and giving them what he's already promised them. And though this whole matter with all these weird names and everything concerns the rights of these two and a half tribes, it is the whole community that he's thinking about. They had stayed together during the long wilderness journey, and this is no time to break up the people on the edge of the promised land. So these uh, two and a half tribes whose land is already secure are still required to send troops with all everybody else into Canaan to secure the victory for the entire nation. There's no every man for himself attitude here. The tribes must consider what is good for all and not simply what is best for themselves. And there's a corporate solidarity that we see here. It's actually one of the more impressive features we see about life with the Lord's people. They're bound together. Each belongs to the whole. And their unified life illustrates a key spiritual principle with important lessons for the church today. In the New Testament, the community of those who believe in Jesus are regarded as the new Israel. Galatians 6.16 refers to those who believe in Jesus uh, as the Israel of God. And when Peter wrote to the first century churches, he gave them these great Old Testament titles for the Hebrew nation. We, we see one example, there's a number of examples, but one is in 1 Peter 2. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Those are specific titles from the Hebrew nation that Peter is now applying to the church. He says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So this interdependent life of God's people in the Old Testament is a model for the church. But all too often, Christians, particularly today, act like detached soloists rather than supportive partners. Far too many Christians make it uh, the mistake of trying to go it alone. However pure their motives, it seems impossible for them to ever find a church that's good enough or pure enough or large enough to meet their needs. If you think about it, Jesus valued uh, the love and companionship of his small band of disciples for three years, though they were far from perfect. No believer can afford to remain in spiritual isolation. 
were meant for one another. And if you remember, that's why we went through all those one another commands last summer. But isolation is not simply a problem for individuals. It has significant consequences for churches too. When we isolate from one another, we not only hurt ourselves, but we can, however unintentionally, hurt each other. Now, I'm not talking about the current situation with COVID, although some of this will apply. Nor am I talking about those who've had a negative or a traumatic church experience. I think there's still a lot of good reasons to gather for worship, even in those situations, but that's another conversation. What I'm talking about is the growing trend of affirming a personalized spirituality. Rather than identify with Christ through committed church membership and gathered worship on the Lord's Day, many have untethered themselves from the ministry and the mission of the visible church. Instead, they prefer to cobble together a personalized spirituality from websites, books, podcasts, and informal fellowship. Many have grown partial to online worship instead of gathered worship with the church, largely for, at this point, largely for reasons of convenience and individual autonomy. Now, people who regularly practice personalized spirituality envision Christianity on their own terms, without accountability or discipline or shepherding care. And the glaring problem with this approach is nowhere in the scripture do we see this kind of privatized faith. It is utterly foreign to Christianity. Jesus requires his redeemed people to be active members of the body of Christ. Clearly stated 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4. Jesus requires his redeemed children to live in joyful submission to qualified leaders. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. So a Christian without a church is like a lone sheep in the wilderness exposed to countless dangers physically, spiritually, emotionally, and relationally. An unwavering confession of gospel hope, especially in a culture like ours that's increasingly hostile to Christianity requires more than you know, just uh, me, Jesus, my Bible, and my screen. Christians need the divinely instituted means of grace. They need one another. Faith withers in seclusion. God's people need sound preaching, faith-nourishing sacraments, and earnest prayer all in the presence of God and his gathered church. God requires Christians to gather for worship because he loves us and knows what's best for us. And it's what faithful believers have been fiercely committed to all the way since Pentecost. If you go back to Acts chapter 2, it says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Gathering for worship wasn't safe for first century believers, but it was essential, it was their chief joy. Now, I titled this section, Love the Lord's Place. Places where gathered worship happens it can be in a building, a field, or a basement. 
For the Israelites, it's the promised land. At this point, it's the tabernacle. Eventually, it'll be the temple. For us, it's the place where the promises of God are read, seen, heard, touched, tasted, and sung. God normally saves and sanctifies his people through outward and ordinary means. And what are those outward and ordinary means? Preaching of the word, sacraments, and prayer. It is in the gathered worship of the church and not apart from it that God's people receive Christ and all his benefits through his divinely instituted means. This is Christianity 101. And it's a central emphasis in Reformed thought and in the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms. And part of that is because worship is the workshop of the Holy Spirit. The means of grace are the sacred tools by which God shapes and fashions us to conform to the image of his Son. And therefore, to forsake the gathered worship of the church is ultimately to presume on God's goodness and question his divine wisdom. Perhaps you've developed an unbiblical habit of neglecting gathered worship. Maybe you've somehow convinced yourself you can manage the Christian life on your own. Perhaps you've entered the realm of spiritual indifference. Whatever the case may be, isn't it time to return to the sacred assembly that which God himself commands and promises to bless in the lives of his redeemed children? How will you now live? It starts with learning to love the Lord's place. Second, closely connected to the first, it means learning to love the Lord's people. Learning to love the Lord's people. Verses 18 through 22. And I commanded you at that time, saying, The Lord your God has given you this land to possess. All your men of valor shall cross over armed before your brothers, the people of Israel. Only your wives, your little ones, and your livestock, I know that you have much livestock, shall remain in the cities that I have given you until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as to you, and they also occupy the land that the Lord your God gives them beyond the Jordan. Then each of you may return to his possession which I have given you. And I commanded Joshua at that time, Your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings, so will the Lord do to all the kingdoms into which you are crossing. You shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. First of all, these verses make it clear God is concerned about the people of Israel. And initially, one of the groups he's concerned about is the weaker members of the community. He has the men of valor from these newly settled tribes. They're going to go off uh, to war, so the other tribes also have a home. But their wives and children are not to travel with them. They must patiently uh, await for the return of their fathers and sons until, verse 20, the Lord gives rest to your brothers. Children aren't to be anywhere near the scene of the battle. They need the continued care of devoted mothers. As we're going to see, family life has a prominent place in the teaching of this book. Second, Moses mentions God's compassion for the fearful. There's a word here for the men leaving home in order to secure the promised land. That even the men of valor 
need the occasional word of encouragement. So Moses reminds them of two recent conquests and two eternal truths. The soldiers are reassured uh, by Moses. He reminds them, verse 21, that what the Lord has done is a pledge of what the Lord will do. Their recent victory over the two kings has to surely encourage their belief that what he's accomplished in the past he'll accomplish again in the future. And they're also given two truths to keep in mind as they leave home. First, uh, verse 18, God has given the land to them, past tense. So they're entering God's land. And second, God will secure it for them by acting as their own invincible warrior. Verse 22, you shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. So they've seen the earlier victory, and now they hear the promise. So let me ask you, by way of application, in your eyes, and this is a rhetorical question, you don't have to answer it, um, who are the weaker members of the church? Think about that. Who are the weaker members of the church? And how are you going to care for them and serve them and minister God's grace to them? For some of you, the question may even be more basic. Are you going to accept them as important and valuable in God's eyes? Perhaps for you, it's the children. For others, it might be the elderly. For some, it may be those who regularly struggle with uh, finances or relationships or with spiritual immaturity. There are a lot of ways to define weak. What is clear is that God very much cares about the weaker members of the church. What about the fearful? Obviously, we have a lot of people who battle anxiety, and that would certainly qualify. But here, Moses is reassuring the men of valor. These are the people we don't expect to be fearful. After all, they're men of valor. These guys are brave. They're fearless. At least they're supposed to be. Who might that be in our church? Anyone whose career isn't turning out the way they hoped it would? That can leave us fearful. Anyone whose family members, parents or spouses or children, aren't behaving the way we would like them to? That can certainly leave us uh, fearful too. Anyone who struggles with school, leaving them with an uncertain future, uncertainty can make any of us fearful. So how are we going to care for the fearful and serve them and minister God's grace to them? Are you going to remind them of how God's been faithful in the past uh, to them? And since God doesn't change, how he's going to remain faithful uh, to them in the future? What God has done, he will do. He will never leave them or forsake them. He will uphold them with his righteous right hand. But who don't you expect to be weaker or fearful? Could be a lot of answers to that. How about the men who lead this church? Your elders and deacons. Think they ever worry about making the wrong decision? Absolutely. Think they ever worry about you? All the time. Think they worry about that person whose spiritual life is spiraling down? People who've rejected their help or ignored their counsel? It's one reason the elders meet to pray every month. 
One of the things we've started doing the last few years is occasionally having each elder pray for the people in his community group. However, if you just stack up a few controversial decisions on top of a couple of spiritual train wrecks, and that'll turn any elder or deacon fearful. Do you care for the people who are supposed to be caring for you? The answer to all these things, the answer that reappears time and time and time again in the book of Deuteronomy is that the Lord is with you. The Lord is present with you. The Lord goes before you. Deuteronomy 31.6, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you, <coughs> excuse me, or forsake you. We get that at the end of Deuteronomy. We get almost the exact same words at the beginning of Joshua. These are the words Moses leaves them with, and these are the words that Joshua begins with. When you're the weaker person, when you're the fearful person, the constant teaching of Deuteronomy is the Lord is with you. How will you now live? Starts with learning to love the Lord's place. It continues with learning to love the Lord's people. <clears throat> but it ends with the hardest one of all. Learning to love the Lord's will. Learning to love the Lord's will. We pick up at verse 23. And I pleaded with the Lord at that time. Remember, this is Moses. And this is now we've moved from the group to him personally. <clears throat> and I pleaded with the Lord at that time saying, O oh Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness in your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country in Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. Now, most of us have been rebuked at one time or another, but to be directly rebuked by God, that's a little different. Start picking up verse 27. Lord tells him, go up to the top of Pisgah, that's a mountain, and lift up your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward, and look at it with your eyes, for you shall not go over this Jordan. But charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him, for he shall go over at the head of this people, and he shall put them in possession of the land that you shall see. So we remain in the valley opposite Beth Peor. So the chapter ends on something of a sad note. Moses turns to the Lord and basically says, I have one more request. Verse 25, please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan. Now it's easy to understand how Moses felt. For the last 40 years, he's had one consuming vision to take the people of Israel into the land that was promised to Abraham. 
That's his dream when he first returns to Egypt, when he confronts Pharaoh, when he leads the people out of Egypt into the wilderness, first to Mount Sinai. For 40 years, this dream has sustained him through all the criticism and the heartache of leading these people. And now he's on the very edge of achieving his life's ambition. Just let me cross over and have a look at the land. It would mean so much to me. Now, Moses begins his request by affirming the greatness of God. Verse 24, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. Think about what God's already shown Moses. There's a ton of stuff. He appeared to them. Moses saw them. They spoke on the mountaintop. He gave them the Ten Commandments. We had the pillar of uh, fire and the pillar of cloud and all these amazing things happened to him. And he says, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven and on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? This is only the beginning. The best is yet to come. And he affirms no God can do what God has done. Moses' theology is good theology. And he bases his request on his theology. Going to this land is the goal that's propelled him through 40 long, tough years leading a fairly difficult people. And this request just seems so reasonable. But it was not God's will. God says, it's the end of verse 26. These are intense words. Enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. How will you now live when God says no? Here in Deuteronomy 3, he says no to Moses. This has to be a huge disappointment for Moses. Sometimes we face big disappointments. Things don't work out the way uh, we hoped. Our prayers aren't answered the way we wanted uh, them to be answered. Our wishes don't come true. God takes something we enjoy away from us. Sometimes he says, you've done a good job. It's time to hand that off to someone else. That's what Moses is asked to do, to hand over the leadership to Joshua. Sometimes, like Moses, we face disappointment because we find our identity and our status or our role or our achievements, but our true identity is found in our relationship with the Lord. The defining factor of Moses' life is not his achievements, but his standing with God. In the obituary written at the very end of this book, not the very end, a few chapters from the end, but when it's written about Moses, the first thing that's said is not his achievements. But Deuteronomy 31.10, And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. So why has God said no? Well, God's already told Moses back in chapter 1 that he wouldn't enter the promised land. He's already told Moses why several times because of his disobedience and bringing water from the rock back in Numbers 20. 
And because of that disobedience, he was told at that time, Numbers 20, verse 12, and the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. So now with this request, Moses is essentially asking God to change his mind. But sin has consequences. And Moses is denied entrance into the promised land. God understood Moses was disappointed. And so he tells him to climb the mountain and look across the river into the promised land. And life after repentance from sin results in a restored relationship with God, which includes a restoration of the joy of our salvation, Psalm 51, and a return to usefulness in the Lord's work. But the consequences remain. It is very rare in the Bible for God to remove the consequences. It happens a few times, but it is not common. And for Moses, that meant that he was not going to enter into the promised land. But he's still in a relationship with the Lord. Now, throughout Deuteronomy, we're going to be continually admonished to be obedient. God's word gives special attention to leaders who pay a heavy price for their disobedience. Adam was driven out of paradise. Aaron was stripped of his priestly robes. Moses has refused entrance into Canaan. Saul is deprived of his kingdom. David lost his sons, all for failing to obey God. And in our day of independence, in a day in which self-expression and personal opinion are super highly valued, as God's children, we have to walk in submission to God and his word. Our responsibility is to be obedient to him regardless of all of that outside pressure. And there is a sense here, I think, in which Moses has lost focus. The promise of the land has become a consuming passion to be in the land. And the focus has slipped from the Lord who made the promise to the promise itself. And this shift in focus is part of what makes Moses' request unacceptable. It is the Lord himself who is to remain the true promise and the desire of Moses. How easy it is to get wrapped up in the gift and forget the giver. And yet while the consequences remain, so does the care, the ongoing care and tender care of God. Within any context of any situation when God says no, there are still numerous examples of God's active kindness that bring us uh, spiritual refreshment uh, back into our lives. Moses sees the promised land. That could be taken as a gracious act of God. God didn't have to say, go up and look. Moses said, let me cross over and look. And he says, I'll let you look. You're not going to cross over, but I'll let you look. And he goes to the mountain. Now these verses bring this introductory section of Deuteronomy to a dramatic conclusion. Chapters one through three, the story began with Moses in public, but it ends with Moses in private. It starts with a preacher in the presence of the people. It closes with a praying man in the presence of God. The following chapters that we're gonna cover for the next several months 
are going to record the substance of this preaching to the people. However, we should not only read here and share God's word, we must seek God's face. Without prayer, no Christian can hope to be effective in his or her spiritual life. The great 19th century uh, preacher P.T. Forsythe reminded us, I love this quote, we must spend time with people in order to understand their problems. And we must spend time with God in order to solve them. We must spend time with people in order to understand their problems. And we must spend time with God in order to solve them. And I want to go back and finish up with a sentence I skipped over. First part of verse 26. But the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. In a sense, Moses is bearing more of the suffering of his people than is his due. He's not exactly an innocent victim, but he suffered because of the people's sin, a sin they had not directly shared, yet it somehow brought about his own failure. He entered into the suffering of his people in such a way that like so much else in his life, foreshadowed that future suffering servant who would indeed offer a blameless life for the sins of us all. We read about him in Isaiah 53. It's written about the Lord Jesus Christ. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Would it have eased Moses' pain and disappointment, we might wonder, if he could have known that one day he would stand in the promised land on another mountaintop? And that he would have a conversation with the suffering servant that Isaiah prophesied about. Would it have eased Moses' pain and disappointment if he could have known about the sacrifice that this suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, was about to accomplish? In the book we're all reading, I hope, General Lowly by Dane Ortland. If you haven't gotten your copy, there's some in the lobby. We've got enough for every adult in the church. Please. Uh, pick yours up if you haven't gotten it. But I was reading it this week, and there's a few lines that really struck me, and of which I think apply here to Moses. On page 31, he writes, he's talking about how uh, sinners became unclean. They did something and became unclean. And if they went to a clean person and touched them, then that person became unclean. He writes this, when Jesus, the clean one, touched an unclean sinner, Christ did not become unclean. The sinner became clean. Jesus Christ's earthly ministry was one of giving back to undeserving sinners their humanity. I wonder if Moses came to feel that way. Because in the end, Moses got to stand with Jesus in the true promised land on the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17, now clean, now touched by Jesus. And that's the bigger perspective. That's the eternal perspective. Even 
when God says no, how will you now live? Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I will close. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we bow before you. We confess our failure to love your place where we gather for worship. We confess our failure to love your people, especially those who are weak and fearful among us. We confess our failure to love your will even when you say no. And so by your grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we ask that you would change us, enable our love to abound more and more, enable us to love coming to worship, to love those we worship with, and to love your word and your will for our lives, even when it differs from our own. Grant that we may live like people who do the will of God so that we may receive what is promised, living in obedience and work in each of us this year as a gathered people, as we learn more about knowing God. Teach us to respond with a greater trust in you and your word, and through the book of Deuteronomy, draw us ever closer to the suffering servant who offered up his own blameless life to pay the penalty for the sins of us all. Your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.